Hi, my name is Jejun, and I'll read Isaiah 40, 12 to 17, and 21 to 31. <clears throat> Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a knowledge, a drop from a bucket, and are counted as a dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and his inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom, to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is miss, missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Hey, everybody. All right. <laughs> well, there's something to celebrate. We're, clo- we're almost there together. Just a couple more days, and then the break of spring happens. Right? We're almost there together. That was a close call. Um, I'm really excited to be here. I hope you are. Uh, maybe this is just a respite for you in the midst of a midterm storm. Uh, but, or maybe you're just kind of waiting for it to hit. Uh, regardless, we're really glad you're here, and we're thankful you're here. Let me just introduce myself real quick. I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship, RUF. It's a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus and also you all. And we mean that wherever you are and whoever you are. Uh, this isn't for one kind of person. RUF isn't uh, just trying to minister to one particular social scene or one, one or just a few handful of uh, personal backgrounds, we kind of want to be a place for everybody to come. And we mean that even spiritually. So if you're not, 
super familiar with Christianity. You don't really buy Christianity. You're not even sure why you're here. Um, you just saw music in the, through the doors and you came. Uh, we're really glad you're here. Someone invited you. We really are thankful um, and we hope you feel welcomed. And thanks for taking the time, especially if you're new. I'd love to meet you if you're new and I don't know you or I haven't met you. Maybe you've been coming and you duck out or I'm very slow to get there, whichever. Um, I'm really, I'd love to meet you. And then can Maddie and Eric, our interns also, our interns, raise, raise, their, raise their hands. Um, and also plenty of students, I hope. There's a good spread of snacks in the back too, so worth your while. So a lot of you guys are drinking some bubbly right now, which is good. Um, anyway, so let me tell you a little bit what we're up to in large group. Uh, we're looking at the biblical book of Isaiah, and the topic is who God is. As a reminder, I'm going to give you two quick reasons, and there could be a thousand, why we study Isaiah and why we're studying this topic. Uh, Isaiah's full screen IMAX surround sound experience of this kind of moving picture of God uh, leads us to ask that healthy question that we say every week, are we really sure we know who God is? Are we sure we know who God is? Or at least I would argue that Isaiah pushes us into what may feel like God's absence in our lives. In the words of the novelist David Foster Wallace, it's weird to feel like you miss someone you're not even sure you know. It's weird to feel like you miss someone you're not even sure you know. Second, these same scenes of God in Isaiah are like a CT scan of God's character. Notice I'm just changing the medical imagery machine every, every week. Uh, so anyway, and this is so important. These images uh, of God's character are so important because of all the uncertainties in our life now and in the, in the future and the past. These kind of extremities of happiness and suffering of, of uh, fear and of boredom. Uh, God really speaks into that. And this idea is that when we don't know what God is doing, when we can't trace his hand in our lives, we can trust his heart. And that means we get to trace. That's not a freehand drawing exercise. We're actually tracing who God is at a character that does not change level. And so that's a really beautiful opportunity. And so that's what Isaiah is offering us. And so far this semester, we've kind of skipped around Isaiah. It's 65 chapters. Give me a break. Uh, and we've really kind of basically popped our way through. We looked at God's nearness and bigness. We looked at God's holiness. Uh, we looked at God's trustworthiness. We've looked at God as the object or basis for our hope. And we last week looked at God's patience. And this week, we're going to look at God's power, okay? his willing and able power. And so with that in mind, I'm going to pray uh, before we look at God in this way, in this passage. Would you pray with me and for me? Father, um, I'm just really thankful for this group of students that decided to show up. I know there's a lot going on in their hearts and minds, and I pray that you'd still them and quiet them, uh, that you'd help us all to be present, uh, maybe supernaturally present in a way that maybe we didn't come in feeling, uh, and maybe we won't go out uh, feeling. I pray that you'd work in the stillness, in this quiet um, that you would move like you move every week. But we pray, we plead your promises that you would show up, that your word would not, word would not return to you empty, um, that you would do your work. Um, but we just really pray for an encounter. We want to know Jesus better. We want to, to, to feel his presence. We want to, to know more about him. And we pray that you do that in this next few minutes, that you would really meet us no matter where we are with Jesus and that you would help him to be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. In his name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right. So does life, the future, kind of feel like a bit too much right now? A bit too much. The reviews, the relentless threat of reviews and papers, even after spring break, I know, it's hard to think that far. Too much. I, too much. Parental demands, constant job and internship interviews, searching, applying, too much. The American political meltdown that we live in, the us versus them, where lives, real lives are on the line, too much. The fragile friendships and the worrying about being a burden to another fragile friend or being too much, well, all together and collectively, it feels like too much. Well, at least for me. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit about just this morning. Um, I made a phone call to my area coordinator and boss slash pastor, Justin. And honestly, it began full scale strategy mode, right? I wanted his opinion and his advice how to handle this difficult relationship and this potential threat to a precious future circumstance. And so I was moving in that direction, kind of asking edged questions, long awkward pauses. But soon this like call uh, devolved into a full on confessional. Uh, all of my fears, all of my arrogance, all of my lack of trust in God was just completely exposed. <laughs> 9 a.m. this morning. <laughs> Fun. Uh, and this is why a pastor friend of mine, not this, not Justin, calls me, quote, the most fearful, competent man he knows. <laughs> the most fearful and competent man he knows. Kind of a half compliment. <laughs> um, just so you know, the professionally religious are human too, uh, for the record. So... You could have easily at 9 a.m. this morning put the words of verse 27 in my mouth. I would have been saying them even without saying them. My way is hidden from the Lord and my right, my case before him is disregarded. It's dismissed out of hand. And perhaps it was like this kind of internal complaint that drove this theologian in the 20th century named Paul Tillich. And he loved to go to the beach. Um, this is a really interesting story. I, I don't know... All, there's, like, there's kind of this, uh, this story that floats that Paul Tillich would, as much as possible, go to the beach, put together a pile of sand, sit on it, and stare at the ocean for a very, very long time. <laughs> um, and as he watched the surf surge and pound the beach, surge and withdraw, the, the surf pound the beach and suck the seaweed and the sand back into the giant massive ocean. As he watched the sort of ocean's majesty unfold and then, and then extend before him, he found, more often than not, the tears would run down his cheeks. Tillich is famous for refusing to use the word God. He wouldn't use the word God. Um, because its use in the 20th century made him disgusted. He felt like it was way too small. So Tillich talked about God as just another... He felt like the way that we talk about God was just like another very large item. Like an object that was really, really big. <laughs> um, like an object among many objects that are collected together that are like dead or alive. God's one of many. And that's sort of why he was so frustrated with that use of God, because that's how we sometimes conceptually think of God. And so he preferred to call God the eternal now, or the ground of being or being in itself, because the being is the necessary source of all other beings, including human beings, <laughs> okay? And that's sort of, maybe for Tillich, 
the ocean was as close as this world comes to getting at God's majesty. This world of things struggles to get towards the majesty of God in his mind. Maybe that's why tears run his cheek at the ocean. The 11th century theologian Anselm says this. When he's writing the, the intro to a book, he says he laid aside his burdensome cares and by rousing his mind to the contemplation of God, he decides to lay across his burdens to God. So he contemplates in the midst of his burdens and his cares God, which is a kind of an unusual move for a lot of us. We wouldn't do that. And this is what he starts to do. He compares God to light. And it becomes a very famous metaphor that we've lost. Um, the light in this room, just think about the sprinkler room for a second. The light in this room is not just another object in the room because it's both infinitely close to me and it's the means by which I see everything else in the room. Right? God is like this light that saturates all things and makes all things visible and knowable. God is not just another item in our vision's range. God is the source of everything that we see and know. Well, if you're confused, there's hope. Uh, C.S. Lewis has these famous words that summarizes everything beautifully and succinctly as he's known to do. And it goes like this. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see the sun, but because by the sun I see everything else. He doesn't just believe in Christianity like the sun because he doesn't believe in the sun just because he's seen the sun directly. It's because he sees everything else by the sun's light. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're going to see in chapter 40 that comparing God to anything, whether it's oceans or light, does not accurately do it. It is a disservice to God. But we also, on the other hand, don't need to depersonalize God by calling him the ground of being. And yet, like, don't lose the point in the midst of all these theologians from all these centuries. Please don't, okay? Anselm and Tillich and Lewis are giving us a really helpful model or example. In line with our passage tonight, they're showing us how to cope with life when it feels burdened, when it feels like it's too much, when it feels like the future feels so heavy and so um, distant, but so close. You see, Isaiah doesn't give us the self-esteem pep talk that we expect. When we're down and we're burdened, he doesn't say, hey, you're enough. You can do it. And look, Isaiah doesn't also throw us metaphysically under the bust, which is the other opposite error. Yep, it's over for you. You might as well give up. Doesn't do that either. Instead, Isaiah does this interesting thing. Isaiah tells us that our cares and our concerns, that our burdens and our weariness, they're not really about us. At least primarily not about us. Isaiah says this. This is my paraphrase. I'm speaking for Isaiah, dangerous. Of course you are too small to run your own life. Of course you're too small to control the future. That's why we wait for the Lord God to strengthen us. That's why we trust in him to govern all things. And this waiting looks like Lewis or Tillich's waiting. We behold, we lift up our heads, we lift up our eyes, and we see God's presence and his power in history and in the cosmos itself. So in a sentence, this is what Isaiah 40 is doing. Verses 12 through 17, 12, uh, 21 through 31, they tell us this. God is powerful. God's powerful. Therefore, in your weariness, turn your eyes away 
from your own resources and turn your eyes towards God and his resources. Because God's powerful, we need to turn away from our resources and we need to turn our eyes, our gaze, towards God and his resources. So Isaiah is inviting us into this change of vision in two sets of rhetorical questions. Okay, and it's going to be a little confusing. It's poetry after all. To whom will you compare me is the first set of questions that you see. To whom will you compare me? This is God speaking. And then Isaiah speaking, have you not known or heard? Have you not known or heard? Those are two sets of questions. And God proceeds to answer these questions with just pure poetry. It is gorgeous. It shakes us awake with its grandeur. So God's talkback session, his Q&A time, is going to fall into two stages. First stage, verses 12 through 17 and 25 through 26. God asks us to look and see if anyone or anything can compare to him in his power in time and space. In other words, God is incomparably great. The second thing he does is he directs our attention in verses 21 through 24 and 28 through 31. And God asks us to remember and wait expectantly on the one who is the most powerful being beyond space and time. Again, I'm going to do that really short. God is clearly good in his power. God is clearly good. So those are really short, succinct points for chapter, uh, from different verses. So we're going to look at point one and point two in order. It's on your handout and your outline. And I know this is going to be really surprising, but we're going to begin at the beginning. And we're going to move our way down. Uh, but it's not going to be exactly sequential. So you have to track with me a little bit. Again, it's poetry. He's doing refrains here or themes. So we're going to look first at verses 12 through 17 and 25 through 26. And God's incomparably able greatness. God is incomparably able and great. All right. So for tracking, I'm just really tempted up here just to turn around and read off the handout or the, the screen here. Like, this, these are really, really amazing verses. These verses are so beautiful. When I read them multiple times for my sermon, I like stopped breathing reading them. Like I found myself not breathing. <laughs> and I read them multiple times. Maybe I have other problems, but <laughs> it's okay. That's when I sleep. But the question, but the question behind these tra- transcendent visions of God is really summarized beautifully in one verse. Verse 25. God asks the question very succinctly in verse 25. To whom will you compare me? that I should be like him. Who will you compare me to? Who am I like? You see, from the beginning, it's really important to form the right idea of who God is. And to do that, we've got to challenge the powers, the forces, and the people in our lives that we see as greater than God, the power and the forces and the people that we see as even comparable to God. That's what he's asking us to do. We get to direct our fears, we get to direct our frustrations, and we get to take whatever that is, whatever we're fearing, whatever we're put out about right now, and we get to put it toe-to-toe with God. That's what the passage is asking us to do in verses 12 through 14 and 15 through 17. So look, just really briefly, look at verse 12, for instance. God God who has measured all of outer space, right? God asks, who else? has measured all of outer space. Who else has measured all five oceans? And before you say, yeah, 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 I got that. We've got things like the Hubble telescope. Did you do it with the cup of your hand's palm? Did you do it with the distance between your pinky tip and your thumb tip? 
That's the span. So what is he saying there? For comparison, we're just gonna get a little nerdy here. It's okay. Ready? Did some research. Here we go. The average human hand can only cup basically a plastic spoon's worth of water or liquid, okay? At one time. And the average human span between our pinky end of our pinky and end of our thumb is eight and a half inches on average, right? So this is the comparison that's going on here. God's greatness compares to any human being, any human being, name your human being, okay? Roughly, it's basically this, as God to this human being, a plastic spoon's bowl, like the little scoop of it, to the volume of all of the world's oceans combined. That's the difference of immensity. And it's the difference between 8.5 inches, the span of a hand, our hand, to 93 billion light years. Or, if you can do it in miles, 5.5 times 10 to the 23rd miles. Okay, and counting because guess what? The universe is expanding. Okay, but just, just in case we get off track here, verses 13 through 14, correct us. So we don't just think of God as, again, we, our tendency is to think of God as just one big object or item among many other objects or items. It's just huge. No, no, no. God has not even been measured. He can't possibly be measured. We don't have the leverage. We don't have the size to take that measurement. We can only measure anything, actually, because God exists and he measures everything. That is, we can't measure the ultimate measuring stick. How do we even do this? Whatever you believe about God in this room, he's, you and I, whatever we believe, we don't exist in and of ourselves. Sorry. Our existence depends on God's existence. He is the source of all that isn't God. God is the source of all that isn't God. Crazy. Further, verse 14 tells us that God, unlike all human beings, God actually knows everything. He has perfect, exhaustive, and absolute knowledge. And so God does not need to, and actually God cannot learn. He's unable to learn. Why? Who would he learn from? And so what does this mean about who God is? You're some of you are like, whatever. Look, let me give you an analogy and a quote. <laughs> Okay, we're going to get even more nerdy. Watch out. Okay, the first, the analogy, okay, from a 21st century theologian. I'm showing you a lot of different eras of time because I'm trying to say this is an argument that goes way old. Okay, so 21st century argument from theologian Mark Jones. If God is a sphere, think about a sphere, his center is everywhere and his circumference is nowhere. He is as present in our midst as he is farthest from us in the universe. Yet while he is present in one place, he is never confined to any one place. So if we think God is a sphere, this is how we measure him, ready? His center is everywhere, and his circumference is nowhere. He's infinite. Okay? Second, a quote from Maximus the Confessor, 7th century. Goes a long way explaining the analogy. Ready? Here's the quote. Whoever has seen God, and whoever has understood what he saw... He's seen nothing. Whoever's seen God and thinks he's understand what he saw has seen nothing. That is, God is incomprehensibly great. He's wise beyond all wisdom. Uh, okay. These descriptions are like Zen koans, right? They're confusing riddles. Um, 
And they're mentally challenging on purpose because they're meant to uncomfortably push God and push uh, our ideas of God outside of our comfort and outside of our control. Do you see that feeling? That's why you feel uneasy. Okay, but why is that necessary? So what, Said arms crossed. Who cares? It's necessary to push our view of God and his power because across the board, whether you call yourself Christian or you wouldn't, our view of God is way, way, way too small. It's just way too small. I know this, how? Because you and I worry an awful lot about the future. Worry is just a false form of, of control. I know this because I'm always threat forecasting, always strategizing at the edge or often into the territory of manipulation. I know this because you and I get angry and we get depressed about the present and the past. In fact, I can get so upset that I can't manage my own life. And then I get so upset because I can't manage my own upsetness. <laughs> Do you see, in the, this is part of our symptomatic of our view of God being too small. In the face of threats to our schedule, threats to our friendship group me, threats to our self-image, threats to our perfect major path, we need to do what a friend of mine, Kevin Twitt, calls good gospel arguing. There's some good gospel arguing. Ready with, let's get real practical, okay? We need to stop li listening to the live stream of anxiety in our heads. We need to stop binge watching our failures with less than five second intermissions for bitterness. Instead of listening to ourselves, we need to talk to ourselves. We need to say, Sid, come on now. Who is like your God? Who weighs mountains and scales? Who weighs hills in a balance? If God counts the numbers of galaxies and the numbers of hairs on my head, if the nations are like dust to him, yet he takes them in his hand and he weighs them, what we actually just brush away is dust, how does that friend's opinion compare? How about that Moodle post? Or that professor's hard to interpret look in class? How about all that plus the rising global nationalism that makes this world a dangerous place? Just find dust before God. Stuff we wouldn't even bother brushing away. This is why we need the prayer, 17th century poet and preacher John Donne. Ready? Give me, O Lord, a fear of which I may not be afraid. Give me, O Lord, a fear of which I may not be afraid. What does that mean? Only one kind of fear, only one kind of reverent, awestruck, like posture towards God's power defangs all of our other fears. Only a view of this terrifyingly vast and minutely attentive God can unplug the powers that we fear for surrounding us. Only this can unplug the powers that we resent for blocking our future plans path forward. And this is why the most repeated commandment in the Bible, this is Jesus' favorite command. Do you know what it is? Do not fear. Didn't expect that. Do not fear. Why? Because God, who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave himself for him, gave him, excuse me, up for us, 
How will he, God, not also graciously give us all things? Romans 8, verse 32. Look, I'm going to get nerdy again. According to NASA, there are roughly 200 billion stars in each of 200 billion galaxies. So just do the math for a second. 200 billion stars in each galaxy. There are 200 billion galaxies. Okay, so the total number of the stars in the universe is 200 billion times 200 billion. Which I'm not even going to give you the number because it would just sound ridiculous. So someone did the math. How long would it take to count if each person counted a star in succession? All 7 billion people on the earth counted a star. How many years would it take? 180,000 years to count all of the stars in the universe. According to verse 26, the God who sent his son Jesus to die for me knows and calls these 400 billion times 400 billion number of stars by name and he doesn't miss a single one. How is it even possible for him to forget about you and me? Impossible. Look, so I'm already contending for my second and final point. God is clearly and willingly good. Verses 21 through 24 and then again in verses 28 through 31. Look, again, I'm just really tempted to turn around and read these verses because they are gorgeous. But instead, I'm going to point out that God's questions in verses 21 and 28 assume that Isaiah is merely reminding us of obvious, clear-to-all, age-old truths. In fact, one commentator puts it this way, Isaiah closed the age-old truth in vivid language so that it will penetrate our dullness, take fresh hold of us, and lift us up. I love that. But what about God is Isaiah so urgently reminding us about? What is he still like on this about? Verse 22 tells us, It is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. This is the God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Look, just please appreciate that this is poetry for a second. Some of you are like, it doesn't compute. Like, you know, like, oh, it's not, a, don't read this like a science textbook, please. Okay, all human beings aren't literally grasshoppers. <laughs> I think Isaiah knew that, okay? I think that they knew that in the ancient times too, okay? So verse 22 is painting this picture of God as a supreme sovereign, ruling from a satellite height over a world that functions like his royal tent or tabernacle. With people, everyday people, attending his feast like grasshoppers, who happened to scoot by a picnic and great princes rising and falling like puff dandelions, according to verse 24. God's mere effortless exhale changes dynasties and global political orders. Look, for the more literal and scientific among you that I just lost, Isaiah can describe God this that way too. Verse 28, the Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Aside from being the Lord of the entire universe, verse 22, God is also entirely self-sufficient, all-knowing, inexhaustible, and eternal. Just pick one. Let's just do eternal together, okay? I'm glad you didn't really pick one. God's eternal, okay, is another mind-blowing attribute of who God is, right? His power. You see, God has no beginning, no ending. He has no succession of moments. 
Not only is God outside of time, he created time and space. God relates to time differently than we do. He doesn't relate to time chronologically, moment by moment. Another two analogies. Can we just keep going? (laughs) All right. They're going to provide a view into this complicated truth. Look, for us, a baseball game. Take a baseball game. It unfolds before you're live. We're not going to talk about recording. Okay, this isn't DVR. A live baseball game unfolds before our eyes, right? We don't know the details before they happen. The ninth inning comes after the first eight innings, right? That's how time works. For God, a live baseball game is seen all at once without missing anything, right? God sees the ninth inning at the same time as the first inning, and they're seen as continuous but separate images. Okay? It's going to get deeper. To revisit a movie reference I made several sermons ago, Arrival. Okay? James Chung imagines alien heptapods to have this eternal perspective that only God can have. And like God, they don't see time as a sequence of events, but they see the whole timeline at once in one view. Like the way that they write, a train of thought is expressed simultaneously as an ideographic design, just one design for all of a train of thought, not sequentially done. Think about that. That's how God sees time. That's how God interacts with time. But notice the context of God's eternity. Verses 28 through 31 tell us God's power is good because it's for sharing. It's for sharing. He wants to refresh us in our weariness with life. He wants to refresh us in our weariness with ourselves. Oh, but how? Verse 31 says what we do. We wait. We wait. As I said earlier, waiting is a lifting of the head. Waiting is looking at God and nature and history through a telescope or a microscope. It's looking at God in the Bible. But waiting involves seeing God as he really is, especially versus the things and the people that we fear the most. But waiting also looks like just stopping what we're doing. I know this is shocking. Taking a moment or several moments to rest ourselves, myself, and rest our burdens and our bitterness and our beliefs on God. I said last week, this looks like praying to God. It looks like asking for what we want instead of just trying to go get it. Not mutually exclusive. And this is what most, the most difficult and relevant part is. Look, if you, can, if you can buy into this part, it is going to be so shocking and difficult, but you will feel such relief, existential relief. This is why we both need waiting and we hate waiting so much. Waiting looks like acknowledging God's ultimate control over our lives. Acknowledge his control over our lives. And even further, thinking and acting out of the belief that God's ultimate control of our lives is a good thing. That he controls my life and my future and it's the best thing. This is why you can actually stop working. This is why you can skip an assignment completely. School isn't about your power. You don't have to master anything. You can rest. You get to sit back and wonder at a subject that is perfectly understood and perfectly applied to the real world by a perfectly powerful God. After all, look at the good promises that God makes to those who wait in verses 29 and 31. He gives the power to the faint. He gives his power to the faint. 
And to him he who has no might, he increases strength. And they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. And they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run in the exceptional seasons and not be weary. They shall walk in the daily grind and not be faint. How does God give us the strength? How does he give those who are weak strength? It'll look again at the New Testament in the letters of Paul, right? First Corinthians chapter one, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're told that the power of God is Jesus. And this power of God, Jesus became weak. He did not grasp for power. He gave up power by dying in our place on a cross. So those who wait for it, for those people, Jesus' power is made perfect in our weakness. Look, in his book, Whistling in the Dark, Frederick Buechner reflects on his seminary professor, Paul Tillich. Right? And he wonders aloud why Tillich wept at the ocean. I think it's a good question. At first, Buechner asks, like, well, is it the beauty and the power of the ocean? The inexpressible mystery of the ocean? But then he guesses that maybe Tillich struggled to wait in the Lord. Maybe Tillich struggled to pray his too much to a God who was powerful but felt really remote and abstract, you know, the ground of all being, God. So Buechner imagines, imagines Tillich on the mound of sand staring at the sea. And he writes this. Maybe it was when he looked at the ocean that Tillich caught a glimpse of the one he was praying to. Maybe what made him weep was how vast and overwhelming it was, and yet at the same time, as near as the breath in his nostrils, as salty as his own tears. Behold, your God, vast and overwhelming as the sea billows, near and salty as human tears. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words to us. We're weary. We're tired. Some of us are tired of being tired. And I pray that you would just be with us. That you'd help us to divert our attention to you. To not give up on ourselves. To not think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. That's our prayer. Become more real. Make these not just words on a page, but experiences to live into. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.